Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Dr. Frankenstein would be rolling in his grave. Monstrosity the Card Game is a colorfully twisted strategic card game in which you'll discover your inner mad scientist, create a bizarre monster, and bring it to life. With over a million different possible monstrous combinations, no two games are the same. It's simple enough for beginners with a strategic depth that will keep you coming back to the table for more. The uniquely strange art and darkly humorous theme give life to its addictively fun competition. The best part? You can track it on Kickstarter right now. Check out kickstarter.com and search for Monstrosity, the card game, for more information. Welcome everybody to tonight's joint broadcast. We are joined tonight with not only us from the Tabletop Journeys podcast with uh, with Lee Wanika and Glenn, but also with Josh from the Better Homes and Dungeons podcast. So just a little introduction for the Better Homes and Dungeons crew. Uh, Tabletop Journeys is a podcast based out of the U.S. where we deal heavily with the uh, the rule system for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition talking about it in various ways and how to take uh, the rules as written and apply them specifically to homebrew campaigns and also talk a lot about inspiration that comes to us and comes to our tables from outside of the game. So we do a lot of what we call side quest episodes that uh, deal with movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or TV shows that we find on sci-fi. Uh, like we just recorded, uh, we just have an episode coming out tomorrow about uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which we're really looking forward to coming out. And so we do a lot of uh, a lot of kind of in-game uh, rules-heavy stuff, but also a lot of out-of-game inspiration stuff so that you can bring all this uh, all this wonderful inspiration to your table to make your games legendary. Josh, why don't you take us tell us all about Better Homes and Dungeons? Um, sure. the The goal of uh, Better Homes and Dungeons is, and I'm hoping will always be, when I've got enough wherewithal to make it happen on time. It, it is essentially how to tabletop roleplay better, and I don't just mean you know be better at learning rules or be better at portraying a character. But better in that um, we can always improve how we do what we do. We, we can always tell better stories. We can always tell stories in a way that's more accessible and um, in a way where we actually try and look at a person's lived experience and say, okay, well, what, what can we use here to, you know, be nicer, more empathetic people? Awesome. 
and then hit them and then hit the party with a big rock because um, that's fun. <laughs> exactly right. You know, just hey, <laughs> just because we're being nice to each other doesn't mean that total party kills are out of the question, right? right. I mean, you did come for violence. Better Homes and Dungeons is part of the uh, Nerdy People Play D and D podcast channel thing. The we we have an actual play channel where at the moment our campaign is uh, Curse of Strahd, except it's been adapted into a steampunk spaghetti western type thing. Nice. Where Strahd is not a sex criminal because I thought you know look we can we can make this better. We can we can improve this, and to kind of give a bit of a spoiler, we recently had a um a fire elemental powered steam train become a huge robot dragon that the party had to fight. So. If that's your flavor of Dungeons and Dragons. So the movie, to totally derail our conversation already, what, five minutes in. <laughs> Aha, derail. I like uh, it. See? See what I did there? I um, like what you did there, uh, but I'm the tangent guy. What, I what, just what, want to say that out loud. What, one, of, one, of, one of my favorite- <laughs> yeah, he just steamrolled you. One of my favorite <laughs> bad movies of all time is the is the Will Smith reboot of Wild Wild West, Wild Wild West. Um, which I love that movie, which came out the weekend that I turned twenty one, as did the South Park movie. And so, uh, a mutual friend of of, of Lee Wanika and I and me, we went out and saw Wild Wild West, uh, the South Park movie, um, and then did what every other um, American on their twenty first birthday does and got ripped the rest of the evening so you know that of was, course you know, it, was, it was a fabulous time but that's but wild i love wild wild west and so i love i love what you're doing with curse of Strahd. that sounds amazing i can't give enough love to wild wild west and the idea of a robot dragon train of fiery doom is just amazing to me and like i have like 15 characters i want to be in that game at this moment <laughs> fighting it all right. Like, I, I do want to say um, the, the reason we had a robot dragon, uh, when I was kind of like, you know, someone mentioned, oh, wouldn't it be cool if Strahd was like a railway baron? And my brain's like, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I was flicking through um, Cobalt Press's, I think it's Creature Codex, and uh, there's, there's a monster in there called a Clockwork Dragon. And Very familiar. When in, in, in one of the uh, interviews I did on Better Hunter Dungeons, we had, I had James and Tricasso on, and I'm saying, oh, you know, you've done monsters for them. You know, one of my favorite monsters is this one, the the Clock of Dragon. He said, "Oh, that's mine," and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is the best!" Yeah. Oh, that's funny. This is the best day ever. Oh yeah, I was I was was, was very happy. All right, enough preamble for now. Let's get into the meat of what we're going to be talking about tonight because we have got uh, a topic on board that I think there is so much fruit on this vine. It's going to take us. It's going to take some time to go ahead and unpack it. A love of all of ours is the campaign setting that originally appeared in second edition AD&D, we're talking about Dark Sun. And anybody that has listened to Tabletop Journeys in any detail knows how much uh, I love Dark Sun, how much I love Psionics. Uh, Liwanika and Glenn, we have all played Dark Sun before. Josh, for our crew, uh, give us a little bit of introduction to Dark Sun for you and how, how because you, you're the one that threw this topic at us and said, hey, let's talk about, let's talk about bringing Dark Sun to fifth edition. So... Yeah, uh, I, I'd love to see it happen. Um, my experience with Dark Sun are the two video games, Shattered Lands and Wake of the Ravager. This is very, very much because trying to get like D&D stuff back in second edition days um, in Australia was very, very difficult. Um, there were very, very few hobby specialist shops near where I lived, which was like an hour north of Sydney CBD to kind of give people a little bit of perspective. Didn't really have anyone to play with sufficiently that I, that I could really get into it. 
but but I love the video games and I love the there was a lot of stuff that was really really cool in these worlds that I liked you know I and, and it's stuff that we're going to be talking about down the track um but but it's a setting that you know every time wizards say hey we've got a new book coming out guess what it's about it's like yeah mate it's going to be about Tratist isn't it yeah Oh, Forgotten Realms again. Oh, oh, wow! You did Eberron, and you did the Critical Role thing. Okay, that's great. Can 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 we have the one with like the the, the spaceships or, or the one in the the Mad Max and the? De- no. <laughs> I mean, look, we we have uh, we have flailed numerous times about the prospect of Wizards of the Coast putting out Dragonlance sometime soon. I would love for them to go, but. But again, you know, now that the now that uh, uh, now that the books uh, by Weiss and Hickman have been cleared for publication, we're thinking that Dragonlance will be coming soon. But you know, who knows? So we know that there are probably two more books for the rest of the year. I mean, figured they uh, they just put out Candlekeep and they're putting out uh, Ravenloft in uh, in what June or or like midsummer, May June time, which is at least you know another setting. It is another setting, which is which is great. I'm, like, I'm excited for Ravenloft too. But we are really, I'm really looking forward to see what they've got coming for uh, for Christmas. There's, I, I hope that it's, I hope that it's Dragonlance. I hope that it's Dark Sun. I, um, but I think for some of the reasons that we're going to discuss tonight, uh, I think that, uh, and I keep saying tonight, it's like noontime for you, Josh. It's not, it's nighttime for us. But I know it's like you know you're on the other side of the world. So. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but for some of the reasons that we're going to discuss in this episode, uh, I don't think that Dungeon, that Wizards of the Coast is putting out a Dark Sun book, and we're gonna we're gonna really, you know, in kind of the spirit of Better Homes and Dungeons too, we're gonna dive into some of the problematic aspects of porting Dark Sun, not just into Fifth Edition D anD D, but also porting Dark Sun into the world that we live in in, in twenty twenty one, and some of the themes that were in that Second Edition specifically Dark Sun module that have some. Uh, they have some issues in 2021, and there are some things that we would have to contend with uh, to make I, this module work. I, I, in this kind I would of argue and, and potentially say they had issues back then, but we didn't care it's as fair. much. Yep, nope, you're absolutely right. That's true. There's a certain amount of, of acknowledgement that we've talked about on our show uh, that in the past, collectively as a hobby, those of us playing the game didn't pay attention to, chose not to pay attention to, should have paid attention to things that we know now for a fact are we're wrong. We're wrong then too. We just didn't care to think about it. We didn't think to raise the alarm. Yeah. Or think to care about it, whichever it applies applies. But uh, dark sun fell heavily into that. Uh, That is a lot on the negative end of dark sun on the positive end of dark sun. It was an amazing and evocative and creative space to play a literal sandbox of adventure because it did not have all of the stuff behind the Greyhawk realm, which was prevalent at the time and the building forgotten realms, which had started around the same time and was becoming the go-to setting and is today the go-to setting so much so that a lot of podcasters and independent creators are like, I do my own thing because Forgotten Realms is too boxed in. It's no longer as sandboxy as creative minds want to be. And so Dark Sun has that open space, that range uh, of area to build and grow with without all the pre-written history or as much of the pre-written history that one needs. And then you actually brought it up and it's something that I can't believe I didn't mention the last time 
we all got together, Josh. I am one of the biggest Mad Max fans of all time. Like, of all time. Love it. And the fact that there's basically Mad Max with dice in a D&D setting is one of the things that originally drew me to the campaign setting of Dark Sun. Hmm. I love that element. I love that idea. And there's so many things that I can't wait to dig into Dark Sun and how the things we would do to make sure the setting retains its flavor, retains its heart, and loses its baggage yeah. as we bring it to the modern world. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in here. And I, I want to start with uh, with the big one, right? Let, let's, let's get the big one right out of the way here. In the world of Dark Sun, one of the big recurring themes is how many people that live in Athos are basically slaves to the Sorcerer Kings. Anybody, anybody that lives in the urban environments, uh, they, are, they are referred to by a, a bunch of different titles. Some of them are uh, slave laborers, and some of them are slave farmers. Some of them are just straight-out slaves. But slavery is a huge part of Dark Sun, specifically in the city-states that, that kind of govern the landscape. Liwanika, I know that you had an idea about uh, sort of where we could go ahead and bring that, so why don't we dive into that in that conversation? So I think in order to preserve the flavor and the heart of Dark Sun, there is a need to actually talk about this thing. Right. There's a need to say there is slavery in this game world. There is, however, a conceit that I think needs to be built in the game. And it's not unique to the Dark Sun. It's not unique to D&D in general. It's been done in other games. But all you have to do is really build in your opening paragraph, uh, your opening chapter of this is the world. This is how to play this game is make the conceit. The goal of this game is for players to play heroes. Your goal is to play the people who are opposed to mistreatment of others, opposed to the status quo. In effect, you are playing the people who are part of the uprising. So you can actually start the start the game for the calendar of the clock from what was in second edition back in the 80s and 90s. And you can say, we are now at a point, we are five years into a worldwide slave revolt, an uprising. While there are pockets where slaves are still kept, there are free cities, there are free camps, there are free bands, and there are armies that are marching on cities for the purpose of freeing oppressed and opposed people. This is a game of the heroes who are setting out to find the magic items, free the people, save the world. That's the conceit. And if you start from that concept, you can have any evil in the world as part of the world. That's the bad guys. Right. The evil is the villainy. It's the one thing that you have to be, pardon the phrase, black and white about and make draw that clean line. You don't even draw up ways to build characters that are the evil. They will always be stat blocks for the enemy. And that way you can't play those things. The other conceit that you have to make is we are going to make sure there aren't specific groups of people or lineage, specific lineages that are all one thing. So it's not going to be the slavers are all this one race. The sorcerer kings can be humans, halflings, elves, dwarves, goliaths, whatever. There could even be a Thrykreen sorcerer king somewhere, if need be. There are no 
monolineage cultures. And if you have used that as your backdrop, you then have the ability to have these classic struggles of good versus evil, right versus wrong, oppressed versus the oppressors. And you can mm. tell a wide variety of stories within that and have it be fun and socially conscious. So I, I, I wanted to put one other little thing in. Um, I think we can also, you know, re- reading like the lore of the early world kind of thing where all the races were descended from halflings. Okay, cool. It's it's, it's good to hear halflings got to be, you know, the, the big men on and women on and, and non-binaries on campus. Good for them. Um, but one thing I'd cut out is um, there are a lot of genocides in like the whole world. It's like, but that means we can't have Wemix who are cool lion centaurs and, and we can't have a whole bunch of things. So what, why do I need to have things? Why do we need to have things in this world that said, hey, you know, it was really cool. What was really cool? It was really cool having lion centaurs. What, why don't we have lion centaurs anymore? Because we wipe them right out. Yep. Well, that's dumb. I want lion centaurs now. <laughs> Absolutely. Make it inclusive of everything the current game has to offer. They want loxodons, have there be loxodons. Yeah. I mean, you can have everything and just cut out those pieces that include th- this great thing. A city can be destroyed. People from a city can be wiped out, but that people is not a specific lineage. It is not a genocide as much as it is we conquered a city. And I think you just have to story construct in that way to make this approachable and usable for modern audience. Yep. I, I think one of the things that we like about Dark Sun and could very much run with is the whole concept of the way that um, that magic is kind of done through two different uh, pathways. You've got your defilers and you've got the preservers. It's entirely possible that all of these, like, you know, like the lion centaurs and the loxodons, that preserver magic could have respawned them back into the world or some variety. So there are certainly avenues within sort of the Dark Sun ethos that I want to hesitate to use the phrase that the genocides could be erased or, or or undone, but I think that that's sort of, you know, I I think it's hard to go ahead and look at, say, you know, hey, Dark Sun had these things and now these things aren't done. So maybe, you know, you know, genocides being a thing of defiler magic now that if with preserver magic becoming stronger now, the world is beginning to correct itself, you know, and that sort of thing and kind of view it, view it as a this happened and it's correcting itself. Hmm. Which is an awesome concept, because if you take all of that and kind of put it together, you could narratively write the change from old Dark Sun to new Dark Sun. All they've got to do is come up with a little bit of backstory and history, a little bit of rules, adjustments, and you could have the heroes who are supposed to be fighting oppression back in second edition be the people who started freeing the slaves, started the uprising, started the preservers doing better. So you rewrite a slightly kinder, gentler dark sun that's still harsh, where there's more green spots because the preservers have brought it back. And you found hidden pockets of the missing races that had survived oh, like and now they're allowed to flourish. Yep. Um, it, it could easily be done. It's just a matter of what, well, easy is a relative term. The concepts are easy, actually writing it, not necessarily, but uh, it's there if, you know, Wizards chooses to do it. Yeah, I mean, Morden Kanan seems like the kind of lad who would come on through and say, this place lacks balance. I'm going to sort that out right now. Yeah, for for right? for, for good or for bad, Morden Kanan would absolutely do that. The 
Yeah, you know, lawful neutral. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that the you know the concept of alignment too. So we're ta- alignment is one of those things that's sort of suppressed in five E. I think that we all we all talk about alignment because it's such a uh, it's a neat sort of uh, it's a neat and tidy system to give a two word descript- description of how a particular character it tends to act in a given situation. It lacks any nuance. It lacks any sort of uh, uh, interpretation of a given situation, but it's, it's more just like a 90 times out of a hundred player, you know, character X is going to act in this way if they are lawful good or if they are chaotic evil or if they are, if they are lawful neutral or whatever. Right. Um, and so I think that when you're talking about the concept of alignment because Dark Sun was such a second edition thing, you know, alignment figured into that stuff a lot. And so how do we think that the lack of a of a clear-cut alignment system in 5e, do we think that that would be problematic or do we think that that we could still that we could still make this work? Alignment's like the pirate code. It's really more of a guideline. Yeah. Yeah. I got to throw a little bias here. I do not use alignment Oh, interesting. I, I don't enforce it on my players. If they choose to write it down uh, and they ask me about it, I will acknowledge it. I don't write my bad guys. I don't even write it in. I can't even tell you the last character I played where I actually selected an alignment. I just don't. <laughs> it hasn't factored into anything I've played since I played second edition. That's the that's how long it's been since I since I actually utilized alignment as a player. Or as a DM. Just don't do it. I did use it when I played Rifts because their alignment system is much more nuanced and much more instructive and useful. That's very good for starting you on your role-playing path, but it has absolutely no merit in the game whatsoever. It never comes up. It is a non-factor in that game. So my take on alignment is if it's instructive for an individual player or a DM to help them bring out the role-play of a character... Go for it. Knock yourself out. I will give it alignment as much credence and need and necessity as 5e demands of it, which is basically nothing. It doesn't matter in 5e one whit. There's very few things that I'm aware of that matter for alignment. I don't think there's a single weapon that requires an alignment or otherwise in 5e. Everybody's thinking now. <laughs> I think I I think there's maybe I think there's maybe one or two things. I know there's one or two things in um, Curse of Strahd. There's like a magical wall or something that has some effect on alignment. But otherwise, I'd largely agree. Um, I think the one of the old hangovers was, um, what's the name? Uh, Defilers have to be evil because anytime they cast a spell, they damage the land. And that would be for me a tricky thing for a player character to be a a, a you know and, and please in, pardon me please, please insert uh you know inverted commas here a good character because it's like well everything i'm everything i know how to do is inherently damaging for everyone right and the people i just do a massive fireball at yeah and yeah. So I mean, you could you could maybe have an arc there where they have a different under, where they start to change who they are and you know they become a preserver potentially, um, but you know for for me alignment's kind of like okay, are are you a selfish asshole or not? Are you more tied to a system or to individual cases? 
that that's kind of where it comes down to for me. But yeah, guideline is is is, is a really good way See, of looking at it. And for me, mostly all I look at when I look at alignment anymore, I pick them still. But all I look at really is lawful, good, and then not giving a crap about lawful or good, effectively neutral, um, or not lawful, uh, chaotic, chaos and law, chaos law neutral. Woo, my bad. Um, because there's no such thing as a purely good or a purely evil humanoid at all. All of us, even the best of us, have days where we do something that you couldn't call it a good act, right? So how can you hold a player accountable to that or set a rule based on it and make it a hard and fast thing? So mostly I use the law and chaos thing as a guideline for how I'm going to play a character. You know, are they strict? Do they have a code? Or they kind of fly by the seat of their pants? And that's about all I really do. With. Yep. No, that makes it, sense. It, it can, however, be very useful for like a little bit of drama. Like you could have a character who is you know, generally always makes the right decision, you know, the good decision, I should say, not the right one. Um, and then when they have to do something a bit dark, it's hard for them. So you can, you can have a little bit of fun with that. I, yeah. I generally play, and what I would recommend specifically in the dark zone setting is you have to set up codes. You have to, but role play it. I don't like rules around those kinds of things. I think that there are things where as long as a, a storyteller is watching his players, paying attention to his players, and has the world react, whether by reputation system that we talked about in a recent podcast ourselves, or some other mechanism for that, but as long as the DM has the world respond to the players and what they do, their actual actions as perceived, then that's what they really are. Because it doesn't matter if your character is lawful good or not. What matters is... If he beats the bad guy and the bad guy was believed by the people to be this altruistic good guy, the people will hate the heroes because they hurt their friend. Mm-hmm. Yep. That has yeah. very little to do with the motivations of the player. What it has to do is, is the actions as perceived by the viewing audience, or in that case, the NPCs of the world. So what does alignment matter for that? It's really a construct for what weapons you get, what kind of spells you can cast. And I just don't think Clearly, the the makers of 5e have seen what players were doing in 3.5 and in 4e and realized that nobody's, very few tables are truly using alignment Truly enforcing alignment, yeah. So what they're, and most of the games that they're in competition with have abandoned alignment fully or in part. And so what they've done is said, it's still there as a legacy thing, as part of the game. But it really is not something that is has much to do with any of their core mechanics. You could ha- play or not play alignment, and it would never come up in the game, except for those one or two items. I would say the exception is the Curse of Strahd campaign. And perhaps it would make sense in Dark Sun to make it a similar type of exception. Because we are talking about, again, that black and white. Like it is, you are, If you're a preserver or working on the side of preservers, or the side of bringing back the land or freeing the people, that's purely a good thing. If you're on that other side, which we're not letting our players do anyway, that's not. So there maybe needs to be a system where uh, there are some real rules. You cannot go murder hoboing with magic in Dark Sun without ending up as a defiler. And so maybe the idea is to have some kind of system where it's like, uh, they did it in Dragonlance, I believe, uh, second edition Dragonlance, where they actually had this very long, overly detailed, really cryptic chart where they had all these little pips on this huge bar graph, and they had points on this graph picked for good. 
and then points on this other graph picked for chaos and law. And the DM's job was to tell you where your players were and could actually shift you from uh, one axis to another. No, or dude, what this isn't pre-calc. We're not graphing sines and cosines. <laughs> right. Yeah. Almost like in, in like Mass Effect where you've got, um, they have a, a scale for uh, how your character is perceived as either a paragon or a renegade. As you slide along that scale, you, you get different conversation options and you get different inter you can interact with the game in a different way depending on where you are on the scale that's a lot of overhead though <laughs> well that's kind of where i was heading yeah you know we, we've talked about the alignment system being a guideline or a, or a starting point but aside from that i think the best tool to use is some form of a reputation tracker like that where actions that the party does action that actions that a player takes they do affect as lee mentioned what the NPCs see, what they react to, and what stories are spread, right? So, and you can have different factions in your game if you want to. It depends on how complicated you want to get it. But on the overall scale of do the people like you or hate you because you're doing pretty decent things or you're being an asshat, you can slide the bar and kind of keep track of where your party's going. They start going too far in the wrong direction, you can say, hey, you know, we're not trying to run an evil game here, so we need to either make some adjustments or some people might move into the NPC category and start again. There, there are easy ways of, like, integrating that into the game as well. Like, you know, um, what's the thing with, say, Fallout 3? I think it was, and you had 3Dog who would be talking about your moral state quite quite happily in, in, in a very, very cool way. And, and you can have something like that in Dark Sun. In fact, Fallout and Dark Sun would be really, really good ways of, of looking at something that does it in a very similar way. It's like you come upon a trading caravan. And they're like, oh, wait a second. Are you, you know, we've heard of you. You're X, Y, Z. No, we're not giving you anything. You know, you're dickheads. Um, or, you know, uh, we've heard you're not bad. So that's going to be an extra, you know, an extra five ceramic pieces. Holy crap. Dark Sun's full of psionics. So you could take this sliding bar, right? and apply it to a color scale or an aura scheme. Yeah, that'd be cool. In terms of how you could track it and then apply it to end game. Because psionicists could straight up see what kind of person you are just by looking at you. And I think what it would be is your aura is decaying. Like it doesn't have to necessarily Mm. be a a color, but your aura is full of life versus decay. Well, right. And and then the color is like, you've got your, your law and chaos scale in the color, and then you've got your... For lack of a better term, Mood your defiler, your defiler preserver yep. scale uh, on the the vitality of your aura, that kind of thing. Um, that's that could work. Like that's that something could that could cool. work. Yeah, yeah, and have an awesome end game actual purpose. Yep. Anytime you can tie and key a mechanic up for a topic such as this with an in game thing, so an in world, if if it were real, people would know about and react to you now have a winning process. It's no longer a meta construction. It is an actual part of the world. And the best way to bring any game to the table is to make as much of what you do part of the world as you possibly can. Right. Hmm. 
so let, let's move on here because we have we have some other topics that we want to go ahead and discuss. And uh, Luanika, you mentioned this earlier a little bit. You were talking about the whole concept of introducing uh, the new wave in 5e f- to deal with lineages instead of races. Um, and they, they said species for a little bit, but that seems like they've settled on lineages since then. Um, I think species was kind of in the uh, in, in the UA that first came out um, that dealt with this. Um yeah, so they're using lineages more, but I think they're still, as publishers, undecided. I think they're trying to see where it lands. I personally decided that I like lineages, so I have put effort into using the phrase lineages in all of our podcasts, all of my writings, all of my communications. I'm truly hoping I can will that into being within the course of this game and other games like it. I think the idea is, one, let's call them lineages. Let's let's just start this off right. Two... Let's go through what they've got for Dark Sun and talk about what those lineages are. I happen to have a handy little tool right here to talk about what was in at least one or two of the original Dark Sun publications for the uh, lineages. And I think all, with one exception of these, need to be in this game. And I think one of them that I'm going to get to need to be reconstructed in a way and re redeveloped. When you're talking about the lineages of Athos, I think the key is preserve what was and change what didn't work or wasn't appropriate. To start with, the the lineages listed in the original books were the Aarakocra. They're used in 5th edition, so you've already got a great start. Dwarves, elves, half-elves. They list half-giants, so I would say simply sub out that name. Utilize Goliaths. And we, again, already have a built-in mechanism for a lineage there. Uh, Halflings, humans, Paterans, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's basically reptile people, uh, and Thrykri. Now, these reptile people are different than Dragonborn. They are different than lizard folk. They're a different kind of setup. So I would recommend actually using more of this unless you wanted to use that lizard folk backdrop and have it as a subrace of lizard folk. I think that would be mm-hmm. very appropriate as a way to do as to, yeah. as a way to do that particular lineage. I, I think they were called silt runners, weren't they? Yes, I think they were. Yep. And uh or that was their their common name versus the the actual lineage name or racial name that was given to them. It's and then last but not least, certainly not least, one of my favorite of the lineages from Dark Sun, the Thrycreen. I always love this insect lineage. I think it's excellent and right to be brought into fifth edition. In in, in second ed, those things were like just they they were all, they were terrible because you couldn't put a lot of human things on them. But they're amazing because they have like four attacks per round. And when they got to a certain level, they were almost immune to missile weapons, and they had a paralyzing poison bite attack as well. Oh yeah! And so you just have like this like absolute monster of a thing. Absolutely, which was awesome. Yeah, like, it was great. And they had like a fifteen foot high vertical jump. Yeah, they had such amazing things. And look, you already have lineages with flight, so having a thrykeen with a jump is creating something that it can do. Um, you know, so it doesn't have flight. It has a jump maneuver. I do think in order to handle some of the more unbalanced uh, implements, you have to treat it like we treat the drow or the dark elves as a sub race. You basically have some built in powers that they get at first level, and then they get a few more powers at third or fourth level. So 
so you can kind of stage in what they do and what they get along the way. So everything remains true to the history uh, of this lineage, but it's not necessarily what a starting player character gets. And I think that's kind of the way you build these sub races that have amazing and unbalanced abilities. You build it in and then perhaps you even make some of these abilities specific to lineage-based feats. Yeah, I, I was going to say feats would be a great idea. We already have a, a fifthy mechanism for, for that as well. So that poison uh, attack that you mentioned, maybe that's not one that comes built in for everybody, but it is a lineage feat, which is why the lineage is known for it, because the best of the best almost always take it. You know, that kind of thing. And even the the, uh, the invulnerability, not, it's not really a true invulnerability to missile weapons, but basically the, the rule is that um, at 7th level, the Thrykreen gain the ability to dodge missiles fired if they roll a 9 or a better on a d20. So they are dodging that, what, 60% of the time. It doesn't apply to magic at all. It's only physical effects, you know, that kind of thing. That Again, that, that seems rife for a Thrykreen-specific feat. Yeah. I, I'm also, and I apologize for interrupting, I'm also now seeing like a Thrykeen rogue or monk is just going to be the most irritating thing a dungeon master may have to put up with. <laughs> well, to be fair, most things when they come into 5e get a little bit of a rebalance. So they should keep their cool flavor, but maybe they won't drive us DMs quite as badly as we're worried they will. Well, I think the key with anything from the storyteller aspect is, especially when you get to some of these far out things, is it's awesome if people want to play them, but they should want to play them. Josh, uh, you mentioned the, the fact that from a storyteller standpoint, the key is that things can be very, these side, these different lineages that are a bit out are supposed to be alien. And as a storyteller, you ha- you are responsible for not a gatekeeper for making sure or ensuring or supporting players who are going to be playing the basics of these more alien aspects. I've said a few times that I would, I would love the challenge of playing a lizard lizard folk. However, they are designed to be a very non-human way of thinking. And I think uh, a story, I would hope that a storyteller running a game I was playing in, would hold me to that alien, different concept so that my decisions are in that lizard folk space. Similarly, my decisions should be in that Thrykreen space. The idea being, again, don't be a gatekeeper. Let people have their fun. Let them have their agency. But if a player says, I'd love to do this, maybe it's, you can certainly play that lineage, but do you think you're going to be up to playing that element of it? Or do you think maybe you need to play that lineage raised in a different culture? At which point, maybe some of those feats would not be available to you. I, I think the other thing to, that we kind of have to mention about Thrykreen are um, there may be a little bit of rewriting required there because if I recall correctly, um, a little bit of a law thing on them, Thrykreen are female, Torkreen are the males. And it's kind of a case where like only one in eight or like some like you know it's it's very heavily balanced towards there only being a couple of males for every large group of females which and there's a bit of an ickiness there but that's very easily just like oh yeah don't worry about it you know they're about kind of like us you know no it's it's worthwhile to mention because that harkens back to some of the challenges i think they were really 
turning the there's a queen and a bunch of male drones on its head where there was very few males but the females were still powerful i imagine that some creator thought that was empowering at the time but Probably. Uh, you know I, I imagine that was a thought process behind it because compared to what else was out there in the gaming world mm. it kind of was but that didn't make it, it, it necessarily it, the right it, it's kind of like saying yeah. you know, the drow society yeah. is empowering to females it's like I don't think um, – I think you got a very different definition of empowering, mate. So uh, I, I'm going to I'm gonna crack open this this coconut that has just fallen in front of me here and, and, and let's see what, what we find inside. So we talked about how the really troubling aspect of uh, the enslavement of an entire people um, needs to be rethought of if we're going to go forward with this. And just acknowledged that this very alien insectoid race basically has a queen drone culture. Do we think that race or that that lineage with the queen drone culture is compatible with an, another goal of the of the plan to go ahead and say, well, you know, I mean, are the drones in this kind of situation slaves, or are is that merely is that merely their culture? And and so is that are those two are those two thoughts incompatible? Hmm. Follow where I'm going with that? Is that do you? F- I, I do. I do follow, and I think the answer is: I think you kind of hand wave and don't acknowledge it. So I can I play a drone. You, no, no, no. I think you can choose to play a drone, but I think the idea is let players play whatever gender they wish to play, however they wish to play it. Let them pick whatever role they wish to play, and let that not be a factor. Like uh, essentially, just don't write that into the new lore. I think part of the issue is you have to write in an amount of time that has passed from the time of the old books to the new books. Yeah, a couple of centuries. Yeah, if you made that a couple of centuries, these are thinking individual people. They are not a hive mind. Right. And they've been exposing themselves to other cultures for years. Yeah, therefore, at the end of a couple centuries, they can have a vastly different culture or a remarkably similar culture as you want to write it. So if the four of us are writing it, we can simply just write that in the distant past, they were a queen drone culture. So there may be a few more females around than males, but that is no longer their culture. So it is not necessarily the way uh, you have one to One other thing I potentially point out, um, in, uh, what's name? With Cobalt Press, they have a, um, like a realm called Southlands as part of their Midgard world. Um, and I would say if you've never used any, um, if you've never looked at any cobalt stuff, you, man, you're doing yourself out of some really good stuff. But they actually have an insectoid race called the Tosculi, and they're considered hiveless. It's like an indi- it's like someone who's like an individual thinker who's like, wait a sec, I'm not tied to hive culture. I I can go make my own kind of stuff, and they actually have uh, like some pretty cool, very similar to um, uh, very very similar to like Thrakeen kind of things. Like they've got like a latent hive mind, like they all have the message cantrip. So they can all just kind of like, just like, um, which is pretty cool. And they have some like, you know, like a very specific druid thing as well. So, I mean, there's some stuff that you could potentially look at there as well. That's actually really intriguing. I mean, do they, has the entire race evolved to that point in the way that they have it written? Or is it just some of them have broken free? I, I will confess now. I only I only have like the the smaller Southlands Heroes thing. I don't have the Southlands like world book, 
Um, if someone wants to, you know, buy me a copy, um, exactly. I mean, evolution works that way, right? You, you take the traits that work and you lose the traits that don't, right? That that's evolutionary. Yeah. It, it can even be say similar to like, um, what's his name? Odo in uh, deep space nine, where it's like, well, you can choose to become part of a hive mind for a time and then you can step away. Like it can be a very voluntary process where it's like, well, I am going to go discover things on behalf of, you know, our, our entire people. But I like it's that a very too. That's I think that works out way better. That's a great uh, way to handle that and preserve some of that flavor while still allowing so much agency uh, in the character selections and in the gameplay. So, you know, it allows for that individualist, uh, in the individualistic expression while still allowing a player to say, I want to play part of this. And it wonderfully built in, and I can think of some backgrounds you could write with that or certainly where, you know, you know there's just so many good things that could come from that. Uh, and I'm even thinking about some lost human or some lost other lineage that was adopted by a colony of, of Thrykreen uh, and has been raised by them and is one with them and uh, has these has these different abilities, but doesn't have that message. So, but is used to seeing these other things or what have you. At that point, I'd potentially give them message because I mean the way I kind of see Dark Sun and a lot of other magical things is. It's very similar to like, say, um, like radiation or radioactivity or whatever. <laughs> Someone's going to add me with the difference. I would potentially give them access to message because it's like you've got all this like energy and magic happening around you. There's no reason that couldn't become something your character could do. Absolutely. And, and I think that, and that'd be fun. Yeah. And that's kind of what Tasha's has set up. Pick the things that you want with your character. Just come up with a good story to explain why you've got them. And I think that works really well, uh, just as equally as here's a Thryacrine who left the colony because they didn't have that ability and they never felt that connection with their with their brethren. You know, that's a great story also. So it can, you can do it so many ways. And an idea that I, that I just had is instead of instead of message, which is which is one idea, but have it be something more like thieves can't, where it's not just a uh, it's not just like a verbalization that allows them to communicate, but it is it's you know thinking about insectoid races. You've got pheromones, you've got movement, you've got you know I mean bees communicate via movement, uh, you know so that that kind of thing. There there can be this entire meta language on top of of uh, of everything that they do that allows them to communicate. Uh, in a way that spoken speech doesn't allow them to, you know, that kind of thing. And as long as you've got uh, that set up as a language that others can learn, could you imagine being in that den of scum and villainy and there's a Thrykreen doing something and communicating with another one and your wily rogue is in the corner who understands Thrykreen body language? I mean, that's... And then just starts like twerking along to like, yeah. <laughs> and then one of the Thrykreen says, Excuse me. Yeah. You said what? You said what you. about my queen? That's, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Outside, pal. <laughs> yeah, I would not want a Thrykreen to take me outside. <laughs> That's, that'd be a bad time. No, no, you're, no, you, they're, they're going to punch you four times every one you get. <laughs> So from that perspective, I mean, if you're looking at it from the languages or any of the other aspects of 
lineages that come not through DNA, but instead through rearing and culture in a world where every race was held in slavery, not just the one. It's literally a sandbox of culture, too, because you could have been your your family could have been raised in a slave pit with the wound up being a mix of elves and dwarves. It could go either way. Um, there's there's just unlimited possibility for ways to write that in. So that part's easy. Once you get past the actual species or, you know, physical body, the rest of it's not so hard. And I think that that's one thing that we talked about earlier, too, is that some of the ways that Dark Sun in second edition in particular pigeonholed certain physicalities is problematic in a in a capital P kind of way. Um, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, how basically all the halflings are cannibals. Like that's, you know, going to a system where all halflings are cannibals, uh, going, going from that point to there are lineages that live outside on the fringes of society who have developed cannibalistic tendencies and they're not the good guys. They're not the heroes. You know, they're, you know, they're the bad guys kind of thing. Um, I think really helps set aside, or it really helps codify kind of the difference, like you were talking about from the very beginning, about how we have to clearly delineate who the players are at the table, what their characters are, and that their characters are the heroes. Playing a cannibal that's going to, in the middle of the night, eat the rest of their party is not conducive to the social contract of the game, as as Glenn would say. But that's what my character would do. Yeah, that's not gonna... Mm. That's simply not gonna work to do it that way. And along those ends, you can't have a single lineage be the bad guy. You have to say this group, this enclave of bad guys, which include halflings, which include humans, which include elves, which include dwarves, which include Thrykrine. It's the enclave. It's that community that is bad. So it's the order of such and such, or the camp of such and such, or the people of Dugradun. You know, they are, as a group, a political construct or a bordered construct bad, but not an individual lineage. And the way you demonstrate that in your product is you have NPCs of all lineages sprinkled throughout the game. That doesn't mean you need to have a person from each lineage in each town. That's not necessary to do. But if you take the book on the whole, if you identify and document three different towns, or you have a little mini adventure where they go to a town, you need to make sure that all of the lineages are represented among NPCs that can be helpful or useful to the party. That says all people can be good. And that gives you the freedom to then say any of the people can be bad. However, you also have to take time to make sure that it's not just one type of bad guy. I was just going to say, speaking of, like, mixing with dwarves, <laughs> should we have a look at that other yeah. thing that just... Oh, God. But, Glenn, you were going somewhere, so I wanted you to go there. What you mentioned is arguably the worst. I think there are three things that I think are terrible within the, the Dark Sun world, and what you mentioned is one of my 
I don't want to say personal favorite worst. That sounds weird. <laughs> personal least favorites? <laughs> yeah, personal least favorite. Well, I'll just say what it is. What I think is one of the most egregious parts of the original uh, publication. Yeah. And that is the the mall. Uh, I think the, the actual name itself is offensive uh, on many levels. I think it harkens to other yeah. things. I don't think it's exactly like any specific word used for others, but I think its purpose is to call to mind other words that are used. Yeah. If you, yeah, I, I had a little look at the um, pronunciation guide and it's, uh, it's, it's one of those weird like pronunciation marks as someone who used to be an, uh, an English as a second language teacher should actually know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like mule or meow or something, but it is, it can, it, it's way, it's like, no matter which one it is, it's way too close to that other word, yeah. mate. Yeah, exactly. There are several oh, words it's too close to that are all bad. <laughs> yeah, none of them are good. Yeah. You cannot equate a people to a category of animals used as chattel uh, and bread. That, that are by rule intentionally sterile so that they can never they can never develop their own lineage. They are always a fabrication of the yeah, there's so many bad ways yeah, to describe yeah, the people that would create them. Yeah, you you are literally <laughs> developing. Let's just, a, let's, just, let's just take this and shoot it into the sun, except for the bits that are actually cool, which is hey, half dwarves. Yeah, it's cool. It's derogatory. It's it's it is it's flat out it's flat out derogatory. If this new uh, 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 joint rewrite between Better Homes and Dungeons and Tabletop Journeys is that the whole concept that's driving the world is that that you know preserver magic is starting to overtake defiler magic boy uh, that that can go away with defiler magic like that's okay preserver magic taking over maybe means that doesn't work anyway who knows there are a bunch of different ways that it can be written in but the the underlying point yeah it just needs to go it just needs to go away yeah Hmm. i think the answer is you omit it yeah and then you take concepts from the uh cultures and, and lineages or uh, ancestries and lineages and uh, ancestries and cultures. I think that's the actual title of the pamphlet. We've discussed it before on, on, on the podcast and you say any mixed race goes if that's what the player wants to play. That's in keeping with Tasha's. The thing I would do differently and I think would work very well with Dark Sun is you separate that which is biological from that which is cultural in some fashion and that way any lineage can be raised under any culture and that allows players to pick the cultural things that speak to them that sing to them so that they have a character that they enjoy playing and by definition you build your backstory if you have that cultural thing that means you were raised in that culture regardless of your lineage you actually have a piece of your backstory self-written at that point. Well, one of the things I was going to say is like a lot of this has to also be seen within the context of how second edition races worked. Like a dwarf would be like plus something for strength, plus something for constitution, but would also have minuses to dexterity and charisma and wasn't, and you couldn't have dwarf wizards. So there's, there's some definite stuff that it's like, okay, you know, the reason they had half dwarves was because they wanted humans, which would maybe have one or two bonuses here and there and it's like uh, okay but still yeah yucky Let, let's not do it the yeah, way they exactly. did 
Uh, I was just pointing that out for people pe- people who um, are not like ourselves and, you know, don't haven't had to go through things like Thacker or look through, okay, I really want to be a dwarf paladin. Well, those two terms are mutually exclusive, mate. So that, that that's something that I think actually had to be kind of put out there just for the you know sake of, you know, everything. And, and like I said, that's why we go with the uh, ancestries and and, uh, and and cultures uh, kind of concept. And you write that into the product. Like, so that a true actual blending, biological versus cultural, are, are set up within the framework of the game. Um, it becomes a product that would have to have a a fairly large opening uh, cha- uh, chapter as far as the setup of the game, positioning of the game, the good versus evil, delineating those elements. And then the second chapter, when you get to the lineages and cultures of Athos, that's going to be a deep, thick chapter because a lot of this is going to have to be written out, spelled out carefully, but plainly so that somebody can quickly pick up on it and understand it. And I think that the big way to do it is to have a, set of paragraphs or the opening section just talk about by design there's a difference between the culture of a people and the biology of a people and when you're building your characters you are going to decide factors that matter that you would gain from one and the other they do not have to be the same though you could if you wanted to and then you could say specific details are listed in each of the, uh, along with each of the lineages. And then you can even have, like, you, when you get into uh, each of the lineages, you discuss the biology, the biological aspects, the ancestry aspects, and then the cultural aspects. And so there, when you have the discussion on that individual lineage page, you have the features of, of, of lineage, and then you have the features of culture. And then, and then move on to the next one, and you go one one at, one after the other, and that way you don't even have to have something for half elves. You don't even have to have something for half uh, half whatever. I think as opposed to half times, just have Goliaths. I love that particular lineage. I think you just put that in there and eliminate half giants as a thing. Uh, but you can then just say there there are no half races. There are just people of Mixed ancestors. Mixed heritage. Yeah, mixed, her- mixed culture and mixed, mixed heritage. Ancestry. Yeah, heritage is not the word you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mixed, mixed ancestry. Yeah, ancestry. Thank you. Yeah, yep. that's, yeah. I mean, we, we kind of already have those, like dragonborn and tieflings. You know, we, we don't call them half dragons and we don't call them half demons. No, we, we thought of cool words for them. So let's just think of cool words. And Goliath is a cool word for a half giant. Anything is better than mule. Far out. <laughs> Also, when they okay, just putting that out there, wizards. When Perkins, when you do this shit again, and you and you want to do it right, maybe write a page or two, just saying, "Hey, everyone, we're really well aware that this is based on a very, very old intellectual property, and we just want to put out there that look, there was some very, very bad shit written at that time, because you know we a lot of people knew it was wrong, but we didn't pay attention to it because you know we didn't have the social consciousness that we have now. And hey, maybe one day we'll have an even better social consciousness, consciousness." Won't that be great? But until then, how about we just acknowledge that, yeah, some very bad shit has happened in the past and that we're going to move on from doing that and we're always going to be angry better. Yeah. And then just have a hyperlink in the digital products that leads to this very podcast so people can hear <laughs> why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it, Perkins, exactly, you coward. Yeah. Well, well, then you had your we, hand up. We yeah. double-dog dare you. So moving on from the 
from the lineages and the cultures of Athos because we've gotten, uh, we've put a lot of time into what we've gotten so far. Uh, what do you think it would be next on your list of big things to tackle in this dream project between our two uh, podcasts, Josh? And I'm speaking about, uh, I was speaking about our Josh uh, here in the States. Once we get through all the problematic stuff about how to convert Dark Sun to a, to a, a more socially conscious game and a better game for it, um, there are so many, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned some of the, the creature types and everything like that, that would need to be ported in there. And they're all, they're all full of these strange second edition rules that, don't necessarily that have been that have to be translated kind of like through to third to fourth and then eventually into fifth to kind of make the linear the, to take the line kind of clean that is an undertaking to go ahead and start converting all those creature types uh into proper fifth edition rules with proper game balance for everything else so i think that would probably be the next thing that we would need to go ahead there are and i'm looking at two separate appendices to the monster manual for dark uh that's all like 350 distinct creatures or something yeah that's a large amount of creatures. It's more than 5th edition has even put into its single monster manual. In other words, we need more. Even just the differences of, of dragons in Dark Sun. Like, dragons in Dark Sun are almost a wholly different thing than in anything else Dungeons & Dragons related. They are totally separate. Exactly. So I think the answer is you have to understand if you're bringing this product, you're going to bring up effectively a something similar to what was a box set but you're going to have to produce a set of things you're going to have to produce two books that are going to either come out at the same time or have one planned shortly thereafter because no one's dropping a hundred bucks for a book as thick as this would have to be right so what you're going to have to do in product one is all the stuff we're talking about and then you're going to have to have a very quick basic here are the three iconic monsters that we're going to pick for the setting. And here are a bunch of stat blocks for the things that are the common villains that you're going to find in tier one and possibly tier two. That's it. Small bestiary. Yeah. And then in your second product, you're going to detail three potential cities, one for the bad guys, one for the good guys and some general camp or, or what have you. You're going to detail more stat blocks, some specific to each of those cities, and then more monsters on that iconic list. And, and, and I think that's the way you do it. And then from there, I don't know how you bring out the rest of them. I think you're going to have to do a bunch of either Adventure League adventures where there's new monsters in each one, or Adventure Paths, or perhaps a campaign uh, hardcover that has it. So effectively, in order to do this well in the 5th edition... You're going to have to do at least three books. Yeah, because remember, too, that with the second edition Dark Sun material, no, so second edition very much worked the same way that fifth edition is. That you can play this this module if you have the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. Those are the three books that you need to run anything. So if you want to run Curse of Strahd, or if you want to run Rhyme of the Frostmaid, right, you need, you need those three books and the campaign module, right? Dark Sun added another book to the pile that you had to have, and that was the Psionics handbook because Psionics were so big. The Dark Sun stuff did not get into how Psionics works. It just said, here's all these things with Psionics and go read the Psionic book to figure that out. There is no Psionic book in 5th edition. 
So as a result, you've got to write that out if you're going to go ahead and do Dark Side of the Fifth. And it's going to be a huge part. And I think maybe that's the third book that you're talking about, where you start introducing all the psionic creatures and the psionic characters and the psionic things with the, with the psionic rule set. Psionics would be a good book to be on its own. Absolutely. So Psionics would be a great book to be on its own, but you can still provide maybe like a, a small... A base rule it, set. Yeah, call it call it a tight, you know, somewhere between 15 to 25 pages of very basic things. And you don't have to have... Because one thing I remember from Shattered Lands is that all of your characters kind of had a level of Psionics. Like everyone kind of just has it. Like this is one of the things Dark Sun did. Well, was, and, and it kind of worked like a, like a Fallout radiation type thing like everyone can use the basic telekinesis spell you know so you could even just have like look yeah you've you've got mage hand good for you you've got limited range telepathy good for you because that's just how this world works so you could have a lot of those things but yeah i don't think you need to have too much more than that like a few basic creatures yeah you can in adventure league or maybe they just go hire cobalt press and say just go give us a monster book, guys, because you know, you're you're really good at it. And they could, you know, knock up like a quick, you know, monsters companion guide to to this. I mean, the fun thing they could even do if they really, really want to have a, a bit of fun is potentially bring out like a book, you know, someone's book of the worlds, which gives you like the basic introduction to the world of Dark Sun and the world of Dragonlance and the world of you know, pick one other. And they give you like all the basic, de- like all the basic fun things we've mentioned. Yeah. And then when it comes time to do a full dark something, oh, okay, here's a world book that includes psionic stuff. Just refer to that other book that we, you know, gave you the basics on also. See, and I, I love all of the ideas that I'm hearing. And I love the idea of all of the source information and having the wealth of detail and flavor that all of those books are going to add. But as y'all are talking, as somebody who has to buy the books, the dollar signs are racking up in my head. And part of the issue with second edition and all of the handbooks was there were so many books. 3.5, there were so many books. And that's one of the things they were originally trying to condense was not just the rule set, but the overall package. And of course, it's going to expand again. That's how they make their money. Um, But they already announced, Wizards, that they're going to be, they're looking to increase their product release schedule. and. People are already raising their hands going, it's hard enough to afford to buy all of the source books that come out now. If you double it, what am I going to do? Um, I think the answer is, and I might get shot for this <laughs> in, in this company because I know there's some, uh, some much bigger Dark Sun fans than I. I love the world, but I did not play it as actively as Lee or Josh did. You create a world that's basically a rewrite of the entire Dungeons and Dragons ecology. You're basically, you're writing a new game. From my perspective, I would like to see them take, say, 30%, maybe 25% of those 300 distinct individual monsters that truly represent the most Dark Sun flavor and work those into the source book. Do a general single book for a, for a campaign setting. Be smart about it. Put out your psionics handbook or your psionics yeah, rule okay. book that introduces it to all of 5e before you release Dark Sun. And then just write the write the psionic rules that are as different in Dark Sun, oh, yeah. in the Dark Sun yeah. book, and you're ready to go. Maybe two books total. You don't need to go four or five. Yeah, it, it could be like that that Book of the Worlds thing. Also, like it's like, 
All right, guess what? Here are these two worlds. They got psionics. What does psionics say? You ask, well, here's what it is. And and then you've, you could, yeah, I mean, no, I, I agree. Like, you know, it's, it's an amazing way for them to make money by just chucking books out on the market. And I want more campaign settings, but I don't want campaign settings five books at a time. <laughs> right. And, and Glenn, you said it a while back on one of our podcasts that, that you thought there needs to be single storehouses for rule sets, such as Fae stuff or Shadow stuff. So if you did a Book of Realms and you had a, a, a Shadow Fae book that had new rule sets, new mechanics for Shadow for the Shadowfell and for the Fae Realm, that could be one book, right? And then another Book of the Worlds to uh, Josh Z's uh, point, uh, you you literally could have a book of two different settings. Or, or you know, here here is the rules for psionics in any 5e realm. And so you can add psionics to any existing game. Uh, that becomes its own book. You include a few subclasses, what have you, blah, 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 blah. You could even say, if you wish your world to be heavily psionic, here are some optional class features for each of the each of the main game, each of the 13 classes. So if you're in a world that's heavily psionic, here's a new psionic feature that can go into or swap out with uh, Artificer, that can swap out for Rogue. Tasha set the table for that. You have optional features and you have new added features, right? So then you can have that. And that way, when you do the Dark Sun book, you can add features that are Dark Sun specific. Here are new features that are additive. You've already got the psionic swap outs. And you can say as part of the rule set, for all the classes, you must use the psionic swap out. Player's choice as to which things they're swapping out. Yeah. And that covers the ground because now you've got a basic rule set that's mechanics for everything. It's not, quote unquote, part of Dark Sun. Mm -hmm. It is part of D&D as a whole. So it's good for everybody. Right. Psionic's book first for all of 5e. And then you can do Dark Sun, which leans on, and it you don't have to use a page count for the new psionic spells. Because they're already because in the other see. one. Right. You can just list the spells, like here's a spell list for for uh for your uh preservers, uh and uh and the actual spells are detailed in books up and such. So uh we are Quite a way through this episode, I want to go ahead and go around with kind of last thoughts, but instead of kind of general last thoughts, I'm going to give you guys a specific uh, prompt to go ahead and answer on, uh, and I'm totally improvising here, and I'm throwing this at you totally blind, so Josh Z, let's start with you. The craziest concept from Dark Sun that you would want to see in 5th edition? Totally off the wall, go bonkers. Uh -huh. Okay, okay. Um, maybe not the craziest concept, but it was it was one that, you know, not, not to be mean, um, I, I kind of wish we'd mentioned it a little bit, that in Dark Sun there are no gods. And so your clerics don't serve gods, they serve ideals. Now, we'd call these uh, domains now, but to have clerics that say, you know, when they hit level 20, they can become a god. Like, and even in uh, Dark Sun, the Sorcerer Kings themselves kind of function as gods. Um, also, one other cool thing that they do in Dark Sun is that only certain people are literate and no one else can read and write because it's a crime. Is like, okay, there, there's some interesting flavor there for you, wizard. You know, the reason you got arrested is because you, you sang the alphabet song and the wrong person heard you and then suddenly, well, you're stuffed, mate. 
but I'd, I'd love to see I, I like the idea of where they could potentially go of having you know divine characters that aren't answerable to a god or a system of worship or a system of religion where you can start taking the domain and it's like well I want to serve the domain of the forge but because there is no established god of the forge you could take some areas from things like the domain of fire or the domain of you know of of one or two other things and kind of put them together and form your own like start to form your own kind of cult in the world or start to you know establish your own religion because that would be really one of interesting. the uh, one of the books that i bought on on kickstarter uh uh that hasn't arrived yet is a book all it's i think it's called um remarkable cults and their members um, I'm very much looking forward to this book. <laughs> I think that it's an, it's an amazing title for one, uh, and, uh, for two, uh, the content I, I've bought several other books from the same publisher. Um, I believe it's five, it's, um, uh, EM or I don't, I don't remember who it is, but, um, uh, re, 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 remarkable cults and cultists. Uh, and so, uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. And I think that that's a fantastic idea. Um, I know that you also stole Liwanika's idea, so let's go to Glenn. Glenn, pitch me, <laughs> pitch me your wackadoodle Dark Sun port to five E concept. It's tough for me to give you a truly wackadoo one, like a straight specific. It's more of a pipe dream, you know. It's really hoping that if this comes to five E, if this is brought to light, um, that they can do the things that we're talking about and preserve the flavor. Because I know we've got to get rid of the nasty stuff, but part of what makes Dark Sun awesome is how harsh the environment is, how harsh the social conditions are. Not necessarily because, you know, you're owned your property and you're, you know, bred for labor, but because there's so few resources and, you know, water is scarce, metal is scarce, meat is scarce. Check out what the halflings do. Um, I'd really like them to preserve that harshness while adding some more of the humanity that we're looking for to be added to it, but still have the separate distinct flavor of the, of some of the other groups. Cause we're talking about taking cultures and spreading them out. But at the same time, the way they designed the elves in dark sun, it's very reminiscent of to a degree, except they weren't lazy. In my opinion, uh, the ale from Robert Jordan's world that lived in the ale waste for the wheel of time series. And I loved the ale. I really liked the concept of the tall, lanky desert elves that can run for days. Um, so I want to keep that culture and that flavor, but also make the overall world more accessible to everybody. All right, Lee Winika, I bought you some time. Oh, yeah. Can I, go ahead. Can I just yeah. apologize. Sorry, Lee Winika, I didn't mean to steal your well, idea. <laughs> interestingly enough, my friend Josh Z from Down Under, you're not the only one who stole my idea. My backup number two <laughs> was to really delve right. into uh, resource management. So I'm going to leave you guys with this. The combination of the two ideas you said are what I would look forward to most. I think I run a homebrew campaign where there are no deities specifically, but people have faith in the realms. And I think that's an amazing concept. I think it's very freeing for my players. It's easing for as a DM. I don't have to find some way to play some all powerful being who acts human, but isn't really human. Who's supposed to have an alien mindset and be a part in a loop while still doing humanistic type things. I think that's really weird. I think it works if you're talking about Greek culture and ancient Greek myth. Uh, but I think in practice, game, session after session for a long-running campaign, that's difficult. 
with all due respect to um, uh, Theros, I think it's a great campaign setting, and I uh, am enjoying reading through and trying to find how to make that work, but I think that's difficult. So eliminating that, I think, makes for an intriguing and different game experience, and I look, look forward to that. To Glenn's point, I love resource management. Uh, I think that is a part of gaming's tabletop gaming, D&D, that has been lost from the days of second edition that needs to come back. And a perfect example of how cool it can be, though I don't think it went far enough, is Iceland Dale. I think that's a great book that dealt specifically with resource management. It dealt with the equipment you need to survive, the mundane equipment you need to survive, the uh, the new tools, the new types of things you need to survive in that extreme environment. And I think Dark Sun becomes this area that's rife with the ability to have different types of tents, different ways to cool oneself, different ways to have, uh, to gain and gather water, uh, different beasts of burden. Uh, you know, you can do a fantastical thing or something as common and mundane as a camel. Uh, you know, there are so many different ways to express the resource issue that it becomes rife with stores. You can play heroes whose sole job is to find water holes for future caravans. You don't have to play caravan guards. You just have to find people who are out scouting for oases and defeating whatever bad guys are currently controlling said oasis. Because wars would be fought over water sources. I mean, you find a good oasis, that could straight up become a war. Yeah, or a place to build a stronghold because an oasis would be a stop point for other caravans. So if you built that up and told people where it was, that could be a thing. That's a great place to have a patron a la Tasha's for your players. And I think that's the kind of thing that I'm looking forward to. The new equipment, the new resources, the new tools, uh, the new expressions of skills, and how that comes together in this brand new exhaustive environment literally things that you can take and port out of dark sun to any desert environment yeah it, it's a new biome that's exactly what i was just going to say it's like you've got you've got icewind dale which is the you know the frozen tundra you've got tomb of annihilation which is jungle now you've got dark sun dealing with desert and the thread that runs through all three of them is resource management I was going to say, you've got Dark Sun, which is Australia. <laughs> Without the killer. No, it's, I guess it's got killer spiders too. So that's, you know, see, this 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 is why we live where the where the snow hurts our face. You know? that's, but no Irukandji in Dark Sun. Dude, Australia's <laughs> got killer everything. Like my son <laughs> is huge into the deadliest creatures in the world. And like 80% of them are from Australia. He wants to go there desperately. You guys all went like long and like drawn out in your wish list. I, I've got one that's very, very simple. You know, you make the Sorcerer Kings warlock patrons and I'll be happy. Like that's, I think that that's <laughs> oh. an amazing way to go ahead and introduce, oh. introduce uh, religion. Uh, and, right? I mean, that's, that's, I think that would be a beautiful thing. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I absolutely love that. In the book, there actually focuses of religion, and it's one of the ways you can actually get access to clerical magic. Just by worshipping the Sorcerer Kings, yeah. So just make them warlock patrons. That's fantastic. Yeah. Josh, see, this has been an amazing time. Just as much fun as it was the last time that we talked. I'm, I'm so glad to have you on here. We, we, uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to have to make this a regular thing because we just have so much fun uh, uh, when we talk to you. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'd, and, I'd like and, This is great. So uh, next time you've got, you've got some concept about, uh, about what you want to talk about. I, I I will I will be uh, I'll be pitching it. The only other thing I really love about Dark Sun is ceramic pieces. That's it. We're done. <laughs> Just pottery is money. Yep. So uh, 
and 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 lack of metal although we could have we could have gone on to like the differences like how you'd balance bone and obsidian <laughs> yep. weapons versus metal weapons and how to make that yep. better so someone else can have that oh, fun there would always be a dark sun 2.0 Exactly. Who says we have to do one? Hey, okay. I mean. <laughs> well, when we present that episode again, you will hear it on another joint broadcast between Better Homes and Dungeons and Tabletop Journeys. Uh, Lee Wanika, you've got some final thoughts here? Is that? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, we don't have to wait for that future podcast. If there's something you think we missed or you want us to talk about or riff on, put it in the comments. Send us a, a, a note, Twitter, Facebook, uh uh instagram if i don't know uh, josh where are you located where can we find where where can listeners to our podcast and your podcast find you beyond just listening to our show um i would say don't try and find me i'm a remarkably private person <laughs> um but uh twitter is really all i do for all my podcast stuff if you just look up nerdy people d d because i'm not allowed to have an ampersand because twitter said no um, that's the easiest way to, you know, say hi. Um, and please do, and please ask me interesting, awkward questions about Dungeons and Dragons. You'll probably get it. <laughs> but at least it'll be an interesting... That's what we do half the time, yeah. <laughs> we just call it homebrewing. But it sparks good discussions. <laughs> All right. Yeah, mm-hmm. but ab- absolutely. Man. Like I said, uh, anything we missed, ask us about it. Let us know. We'll all get together and we'll answer all those things. We will talk to you. The t- we will talk the talk walk the walk we're picking up our ceramic pieces and we will meet you at the oasis thank you for joining us this has been tabletop journeys we would love to hear your feedback on our show today you can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast and make sure you join our growing online community you can follow us on twitter at ttjourneys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays will feature our side quest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.